0: Amen. Some people sneak. Some people stomp. Some people strut. Some people just skulk. Some people swagger. Some people skip. Some people sashay. Some people stride. Some people scurry along, you could say. Some people stumble. Some people shuffle. And some people just sort of slide along. How do you step? How do you walk? Walking is the physical activity that most people participate in more than any other. Psychologists say that everyone has their very own PMP, their primary movement pattern. The way you walk reveals a great deal about yourself. A stride means self-confidence. A shuffle belongs to a timid person. A swagger indicates a big ego. Your walking style reveals your personality. Apparently, your gait is a gateway to your soul. And Paul would agree. For here in chapter 4, he describes how we ought to walk. But Paul's concern isn't our PMP, whether we strut or whether we shuffle. He's talking about our lifestyle, our conduct. When Paul speaks of our walk, he means how we live our lives. And he's saying to Christians, this is how we roll. Verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now recall, the believers in Thessalonica were wartime babies. They were born again in the midst of persecution. Paul had spoken of the lifestyle that these believers should be living. But now in tough times, he wanted to encourage them to continue in what they had learned. I remember hearing former boxer Mike Tyson once said, everybody has a plan until they get punched. How true that is. It's certainly true for us. It's easy to walk with Jesus in a supportive climate. But what happens when we get punched? When allegiance becomes costly. And this is why Paul urges and exhorts the Thessalonians to continue in God's commandments. He says, verse 3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I've never known a Christian who didn't desperately want to know God's will for their life. We're constantly trying to decipher it, aren't we? Where we should go to college or who we should marry or what job we should take, or where we should live, or what church we should attend. But the will of God is not some great enigma. It's really quite straightforward. Here Paul sums it up as your sanctification. In other words, this is God's will for you. He wants you to live a life reserved for Him. It's been said, God is more concerned about who you are than what you do, And he's more concerned about what you do than where you do it. God's will is more about our character and the choices we make. Author C.S. Lewis once wrote, Every time you make a choice, you turn the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, You slowly turn this central thing either into a heavenly or hellish creature. Either a creature in harmony with God and with other creatures or else into one that's in a state of war and hatred with God and with His fellow creatures. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, Idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. But each of us is progressing to one state or the other. Here's what Lewis is saying to us. Whether you end up in heaven or whether you end up in hell, you'll belong there. For all along the way in your life, you are preparing yourself by the choices that you make now. In a sense, you get to heaven or hell before you actually get there by either becoming more heavenly or more hellish. And sanctification is the process of becoming more heavenly by making Christian choices. And this is God's will for you. It's how you should walk. Rather than please the world, God wants you and I to please Jesus. It's how we should roll. And sanctification doesn't just involve what we do at church, or at work, or in the marketplace, in the public venues of life. It also involves what happens in the bedroom, in the private, intimate issues of our life. It's not just what we do on the street, it's also what we do between the sheets. For he says in verses 3 and 4 that God's will is that you should abstain from sexual immorality that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor the word translated sexual immorality is the word the Greek word pornia from which we get our word porn this was a blanket term in the ancient world that covered all forms of illicit sexual activity today it covers hooking up and shacking up and friends with benefits and booty calls in polymorphous arrangements and pornography and strip clubs, and I could just go on and on and on. Any sexual activity outside of marriage is pornea or sexual immorality. You see, the buzzword in today's society is safe sex. If it's safe, it's okay. But God's word tells us to save sex. God has designed sexual sexuality. And sexual activity for a husband and a wife. And Paul elaborates on this in verse 5. He says, Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness." You know, the contemporary attitude towards sex is that it's nothing more than a physical act. Like brushing your teeth, or eating pizza. People treat sex today as a form of relaxation or as a harmless pastime or an exercise routine of no more consequence than riding a stationary bike. But this attitude doesn't explain the impact that sex has on our psyche. And the callousness it creates in our soul. I'll never forget the commercial that ran a few years ago. It was really heartbreaking. The camera was outside a sleazy hotel, the site of a one night hookup. You only hear the voices. The woman asks, So you have nothing to say? She obviously wants to believe that she means something to the man with whom she's just been intimate, but he replies curtly, No. She begs for the slightest affirmation. You have nothing to say to me? With a smirk, he says, sorry. She snaps back, fine, covering up her hurting heart. You see, the guy in the commercial doesn't value this woman. He doesn't care for her as a person. She's just an object to him. She's a toy to she, he uses to gratify her, his selfishness. Like a paper towel, he's washed his hands of her. He's thrown her away. Paul calls this taking advantage of and defrauding. You see, sex apart from a lifetime commitment called marriage devalues and diminishes the couple's self-worth. Contemporary wisdom might say that sex is nothing more than a physical act, but it's not true. Your own heart tells you so. When the sex is over, you long to be loved for who you are as a person. Allow yourself to be used up sexually without insisting on the highest commitment in return. And it affects, the effect on your psyche is demeaning. You might be able to justify an immoral lifestyle mentally, but you can't escape its emotional damage. For Paul adds in verse 9, Therefore he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us His Holy Spirit. Don't say, oh, this is just Pastor Sandy's opinion. No, no, no. Paul says, reject the decree to abstain from sexual immorality and you're directly violating the will of God. And then he says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. This is how we should walk. We should walk in love. I don't think it's too strong of a statement to make. If love is not the instinctive response of your heart, then you're not a Christian. Hey, rabbits don't take hopping lessons. Birds don't go to flight school. Fish don't need swimming lessons, even though they do travel in schools, by the way. But my point is that some things come natural. And so it is with a Christian and love. The Spirit of God births within us the love of God. A Christian doesn't have to be taught to love. It comes naturally. We simply remain in God's love for us. And speaking of love, verse 10 tells us, And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. The Thessalonians were known for their love, the love that they showed the neighboring churches. But love can enlarge. And this was Paul's desire for the Thessalonians that they increase in love more and more. And he urges them with some practical advice. Verse 11. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life. To mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. That you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. You know, there are Christians in churches today who are always picking a fight. Theirs is a militant Christianity. And let me say that Christian life is full of battles. The problem, though, is that we don't always identify the real enemy. Often our enemy is the lust in our own heart. But we like to set up little straw men that we can pummel and feel righteous about doing so. We boycott certain corporate evils and picket secular causes instead of seeking our own purity, examining our own heart. Paul says when it comes to the outside world, we should live a quiet life. We should mind our own business. We should go to work. In other words, keep a low profile. Pay your bills. Work hard. Be kind. Rather than always fight, be known for what you're for, not just what you're against. This is the Christianity the world needs to see. Sadly, a quiet Christian is an oxymoron in some circles. We need to realize pushy Christians generally push people away. I think a better approach is graciousness. And then in verse 13, Paul changes the subject from our walk in the world to our exit from the world. He says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now note, Paul refers to the deceased believers not as dead, but as those who have fallen asleep. Jesus used this same idiom for death in reference to Lazarus, remember. In John chapter 11, verse 11, he told his disciples, Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. We know from the text that Lazarus had been dead for four days. I mean, the old boy's body had already started to decompose. You see, when Jesus and Paul use the term sleep, they do so metaphorically. We're promised that our bodies will inevitably be resurrected. Thus, in a sense, they're still viable. Our life has merely been suspended. Jesus will see to it that this body functions again, thus... For the moment when a person dies, they sleep. But that's the body. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When our body dies, it goes to sleep. But our spirit goes to be with Jesus. The idea of soul sleep isn't biblical. The spirit of a Christian who dies immediately enters the wonderful conscious presence of Jesus It's our bodies that snooze, not our spirits. And it's the Christians' hope that one day our sleeping, decaying bodies will awake. They'll be resurrected. You know, the Greek idea of immortal bliss was for the spirit to rid itself of the body. But Christianity promises better. God has more in mind for us than just to be a bodiless spirit. The Lord intends to redeem everything that sin has spoiled, and that includes these mortal bodies. One day, we're going to receive new bodies. For Paul continues, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is our guarantee of eternal life. Since Jesus rose again, we know we'll be with him when he returns. And in verse 15, Paul describes the return of Jesus For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now here Paul speaks of an event yet future. We call it the rapture. The Lord will descend from heaven. And Paul gives us a play-by-play account of how this will happen. First, the Lord himself will give out a holler. Yeah! Something like that. It'll be cool to hear Jesus shout, won't it? You bet. Then the archangel pipes in. Maybe he hollers too. Next, we'll hear a trumpet blast. And then a miracle will take place. The bodies of all believers from all the ages, some nothing but ashes, some nothing but scattered ashes, will suddenly rise. A metamorphosis will take place. Graves will empty. And the effects of death will be reversed. Corpses will be resurrected and made new. People often ask, why did the dead in Christ rise first? The answer, they got six feet further to go. But that's not all. Verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And this is where we get the term rapture. It's Latin for caught up. The Greek word is harpazo. It means to snatch away. Like a yo-yo, hesitating at the end of a string, Suddenly the Lord is going to pop his wrist and up we'll go. One moment we'll be spinning around here on the ground. The next moment we'll land firmly into the palm of God. What a wonderful feeling that'll be. On two occasions in the scripture, God got in a little rapture practice. Remember Enoch? Genesis chapter 5 tells us Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. He just vanished. He took a walk with God. He needed it up closer to God's house than his house. And God said, let's come on home. God snatched him from the earth. Recall too, when Philip baptized the Ethiopian, Acts chapter 8, verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. But Philip was found in and is found at Azotus. Philip vanished and then reappeared some thirty-five miles away. Enoch and Philip were examples of what will happen to an entire generation of Christians. God is going to snatch them up. This is the miracle that we've referred to as the rapture. And in the process of the transportation, also expect a transformation. For 1 Corinthians 15 verse 53 tells us that at the rapture this corruptible body must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. God will beam us up and in the process rearrange our molecular structure so that when we appear with the Lord we'll have a refashioned body. A body like Jesus. Greek scholar Dr. Kenneth Wiest, he says that the Greek term harpazo, it has five different meanings. It can mean to catch away speedily or to seize by force or to claim for one's own self or to move to a new place or to rescue from danger. And with the rapture of the church, all five meanings definitely apply. Jesus snatches us up. In a twinkle of an eye. You know, that's faster than a blink. A twinkle. And then he strips us from the tight clutches of this world. He receives us as his bride. He relocates us to a new home. And finally, he rescues us from the wrath to come. The final judgments that God has ordained for this wicked world. The rapture is our great escape. And here's the most thrilling promise of all. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. We'll be with Jesus. Isn't that the fulfillment of all our hopes and dreams? To finally be with Jesus and never leave his side. That's my desire. Paul adds, therefore comfort one another with these words. Of course. This is the encouragement we need. That we'll forever be with the Lord. We need to constantly remind ourselves that the Lord is coming back. Hang in there, friend. Hold on to your faith. Hunker down and persevere. The cavalry's coming. It's all going to be good when Jesus comes back. And then chapter 5 tells us, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Now apparently the Thessalonians were well informed as to the indicators of the Lord's return. You recall in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus told us of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. In other words, no one knows the day or the hour of Jesus' return. But apparently we can know the times and the seasons. For here Paul says to the Thessalonians, you have no need that I should write to you about these things. You know the times and the seasons. God has given us signs or indicators to let us know that we're getting close to the return of our Lord Jesus to this earth. He doesn't want us to be caught off guard. And One of the signs of the end times is given to us in verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, Peace and safety... Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. First, let's define this term, the day of the Lord. Currently, we live in what's called the day of man. Hey, today, mankind is having his say. Mankind is getting his way. But the day is coming when God is going to shut up mankind. God is going to intervene in human affairs. God will have his say, and God will get his way. The day of the Lord begins with the full scale global evacuation of Christians known as the rapture. Then God is going to punish this rebel planet once and for all. God will send his creation into labor pains. The natural order will cramp up. Incredible catastrophes will upset the ecosystem, the earth gets hit with contractions. Mother nature eventually gives birth to the glorious kingdom of God. Jesus will reign and rule, but to get there the old girl's going to have to go through a painful L&D. And here's the clue that starts it all. When you hear peace and safety, then sudden destruction. The day of the Lord is preceded by a false peace. A pseudo-shalom. There's a calm before the storm. You know, it always bothers me that Bible-believing Christians get excited whenever a new war breaks out in the Middle East. We see it as a sure signal that the end is near. But it's not a war we should be anticipating. It's a peace. It's a sinister shalom that will precede the day of the Lord. When the nations believe that the danger is past, that's when sudden destruction Breaks out in earnest. Paul says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. The world's going to be shocked and rocked by the sudden disappearance of millions of believers. I'm sure it'll cause many folks to remember our warnings. For the world, Jesus is coming as a thief in the night, but believers should be watching We should be on constant stakeout, aware of the signposts, looking for Jesus. Verse 6, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Are you watching? Are you ready for Jesus' return? Don't doze off spiritually. Be alert. We need to live our lives on the edge of our seat. Once I had some chest pains that scared me and, sent me to the doctor, and turned out to just be a bad case of indigestion. But I'll never forget what this doc told me. And this was a college-educated man. I mean, he had degrees on his wall. I'm telling you, a whole wall full of degrees. And yet this doctor says to me, Oh, it's good that you came in today. A lot of people ignore the signs, and they wake up the next day dead. An educated man told me, people wake up dead. Well, in a spiritual sense, everyone is going to wake up after they die. When you pass into eternity, you get 20-20 insight, man. You'll see it all clearly, but by then, it's too late. The idea is to wake up before you die, not afterwards. And then verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. (laughs) I'm sure you've heard the phrase... Nothing good happens after midnight. Wish I had a nickel for every time I told that to my kids. But that's Paul's point here. Folks with evil intent, they don't like to operate in the light of God. They seek the cover that the cover they seek the cover of darkness. They want to hide from God's light. They run from his word. We should be the opposite. He says, but let us who are of the day be sober. We should run to the light of God and His Word. Let's be pure-hearted and sober-minded. And then verse 8, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Here we're told to strap on our protective gear, our armor. The breastplate guards the heart, the desires. The helmet shields the mind, our thoughts. And here are two areas where we all need to seek spiritual protection We need to choose wisely the things that we desire and the thoughts that we think. Nobody goes to battle without protection. We need to strap on the breastplate and the helmet. Be careful what you desire. Be careful what you think. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, literally, whether we live or die, we should live together with Him. Now, passages like verse 9 convince me that Jesus will return for His church not after the Great Tribulation or at its midpoint, but prior to the Lord's coming judgment. He says, For God did not appoint us to wrath. Paul made a similar statement in chapter 1, verse 10. Where he introduced Jesus as he who delivers us from the wrath to come. And here's where it might be helpful for me to give you three basic reasons why I hold to a pre tribulational rapture that the church will go up before God's judgment comes down. Here's the first big reason for you a pre tribulational rapture is compatible with God's promises to his church. God did not appoint us to wrath. He's promised to deliver us. In Revelation 3 verse 10, Jesus promises the church of Philadelphia, the faithful church, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. They'll be kept from the hour of trial. The world is destined to be judged, but not the faithful church. In addition, Revelation 13 verse 7 tells us that in the great tribulation, the Antichrist will be given power To make war with the saints and to overcome them. Yet in Matthew 18, Jesus says the gates of hell will never prevail against or overcome his church. Thus the true church can't be around in the great tribulation. The second reason I believe in a pre-trib rapture is that it's compatible with the doctrine of imminency. There are scores of Bible passages that encourage the church to be like a brand of batteries. Ever ready? Are you ever ready? No man knows the day or the hour. Jesus can return at any time. This is what the Bible teaches. Yet if you believe that the rapture occurs at the end of the great tribulation or even at its midpoint, you undermine this concept of imminence. Daniel 9 tells us that when the great tribulation starts, it gives us the event that sets off the beginning. It gives us what finishes it. It gives us what happens in the middle. Thus, if the rapture occurs at any point on that timeline, we have signposts to predict its placement. This would nullify the idea of imminency. It's only when the rapture occurs beforehand that it can truly happen at any time. And then the third reason I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture is that it's compatible with the biblical characteristics of Christ's return to the earth. You know, there are passages in Scripture that promise Jesus will return during a time of peace. But there are other verses that tell us He comes in the midst of an enormous battle. Here in Thessalonians, it tells us that He comes suddenly, unexpectedly, as a thief in the night, while Revelation 19 pictures Him returning to a world mobilized against Him. The nations are ready to fight and resist the Lord. Here's what I'm saying. And looking at these various references to the return of the Messiah, you realize they can't all fit a single scenario. There are actually two second comings. Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom at the end of the tribulation, but he comes to rapture his church before it begins. Pre-tribulation. And so chapter 5 continues. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And here's one of my favorite verses. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be nice to your pastor. (laughs) One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. Recognize what he does for you. The load he carries. Don't assume he gets a lot of thanks. Trust me, he'll appreciate your appreciation. Guarantee you. And he says, be nice, or be at, I'm sorry, be at peace among yourselves. Here's how you can really bless your pastor. Get along with your fellow church members. You know, in those rare moments when my four kids were all getting along I was one happy camper. And so it is with a pastor. When the people are living together in harmony and in love for one another, it blesses and encourages a pastor's heart. Verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. The word is literally insubordinate. You know, the Greek term applied to a soldier who refused to follow rank Who insisted on marching to his own drumbeat. And too many folks in the body of Christ have a similar attitude. An unruly person has a hard time submitting to leadership. And it's not just a problem with their pastor. It's their own stubborn resistance to any and all authority. The law, policemen, government, parents, employers, umpires. You see it in every area of life. People aren't content unless they're in control. And if we keep us in the context of helping our pastor, when you see an unruly person, don't give them a listening ear. Don't, Don't try to comfort them with a sympathetic shoulder to cry on. That's like throwing gasoline onto a brush fire. Exhort the unruly person to trust the pastor and the elders. Warn them. Remind them that they don't have all the information. Encourage them to go to their leaders with their questions. Insist that they either straighten up or move on. And we're not only supposed to warn the unruly, but we're supposed to comfort the faint-hearted and uphold the weak and be patient with all. You know, there should be no tolerance among us for insubordination, but weakness is another matter. We're all weak. We all have our problems. And we all need to patiently help each other unpack those problems and resolve those problems. Paul gives us great advice in verse 15. He says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. A Christian should learn to fight evil with good. Now comes what I call the machine gun commands. These little short bursts, these rapid fire commands Paul's going to throw At the Thessalonians. Verse 16. Rejoice always. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And take your joy from Him alone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Maintain a continual open-ended conversation with God. Do you know you can pray and just never say amen? You can just start your prayer in the morning. And never say amen. And just continue an all-day-long conversation with God. And then verse 18, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You want to be in the will of God? Then in everything give thanks. You know, lots of bad stuff happens in our life for which we can't be thankful. I'm not thankful for the death of a loved one or for a serious automobile accident for a fire or for a Georgia Bulldog collapse. I can't be thankful for those kinds of things. But Paul doesn't say, for everything give thanks. He says, in everything give thanks. I can be thankful that God still loves me regardless of my circumstances. I can be thankful that I have spiritual blessings that can't be stolen. I can be thankful that God takes all things, even bad things, and works them together for good. This is God's will. In everything, give thanks. And then he continues his rapid fire instruction. Verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. You know, there are various sins that we can commit against the Holy Spirit. Did you know you can grieve the Spirit? That is, you can do what He forbids. That grieves Him. But to quench the Spirit is to not do what He commands. When we fail to move in faith, and step out and follow his will, we extinguish the fire of the Holy Spirit. And he tells us one way that we quench the Spirit, it's when we prohibit or neglect his gifts. For Paul says in verse 20, Do not despise prophecies. Prophecy is a special gift of God's Spirit. You know, God's usual method of corresponding with his people is through his word. But there are times when the Spirit speaks spontaneously to a specific need. He speaks through an ecstatic utterance or a prophecy. It seems the Corinthians were the Pentecostals of the New Testament. They tended to overemphasize and misuse spiritual gifts, whereas the Thessalonians were the Baptists of the New Testament. They sort of downplayed the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. But neither approach was biblical. Thessalonica was only about 150 miles from Corinth. Perhaps they heard of the Corinthians' abuses and went to the opposite extreme. They wanted nothing to do with spiritual gifts. But again, both approaches quench the Spirit. Even today, it's hard to find a church with a balanced approach to spiritual gifts. Either they're swinging from chandeliers or they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Both attitudes quench the Spirit. We need all the spiritual gifts and we need to use them properly. And in verse 21, he says, test all things, hold fast what is good. And here's the balance that we need. Test all things, hold fast to what is good. Don't discourage prophecies, but neither should you believe them just because you've heard them. Use discernment. Just because someone says, thus saith the Lord, doesn't mean that what follows is really from the Lord. See, the problem with prophecy is that it's subject to human error. In prophecy, people become God's mouthpiece. And when humans are involved, there can be errors. The answer is to check it out. Is the message in harmony with God's word? If it's from God, it will be. Is it in keeping with the nature of Jesus? If it's from God, it will be. Has it been confirmed by the counsel of otherwise Christians? If so, take it to heart and act on it as the Lord leads. If not, then reject it. And then finally, in verse 22, Paul commands, abstain from every form of evil. Oh boy, evil comes in different shapes and sizes, doesn't it? Different styles. Stay away from anything. That's remotely evil. And then he closes with a benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. Did you hear about the guy who walked into the fancy restaurant? He wasn't wearing a necktie. And so the maitre d' refused to seat him. Well, the man was livid. Stomped out to his car, grabbed his jumper cables, wrapped them around his neck, re-entered the restaurant and shouted at the maitre d', Is this good enough for you? The man said, Yeah, but you better not start anything. I've been waiting all morning to share that. I thought that was great. You better not start anything. Understand, what God starts, He is faithful to finish. He saves us. He sanctifies us. But then catch this. He even keeps us blameless to the end. There are no limits to God's forgiveness. His mercy toward us. And then Paul closes, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I'm not so sure I'm so crazy about that. but The Phillips paraphrase puts it, give a handshake all around among the brotherhood. I'm a little bit more comfortable with that. Paul's point, though, is that when Christians meet, we should greet each other warmly and sincerely. And then verse 27 ends the letter. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.